Recovery Elevator, episode 31. I'm not the type to drink when things go bad. I'm the type to drink when everything looks fine again. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for one year, one week, and two days. Before we get into today's amazing podcast, let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Nation. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well to family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recent recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.SoberNation.com. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. On today's podcast, we've got Lindsay. She's 32 years old. She's got two kids, lives in Florida, and Lindsay has been sober for 17 months. Lindsay's story definitely resonates with myself because... She was in her first 30 days of sobriety for nearly four years, but she just kept going and didn't give up. That's how I felt at the end of 2013 and the summer of 2014. I couldn't string more than 10, 15, 20 days together. But before we get into the interview segment of the podcast today, we've got part two of my story. This podcast is not about me. My story is not more important than your story. It's not better. It's not worse. And to tell you the truth, it's probably not that much different than yours. What I mean by that is, while listening to my story and all the other stories on this podcast, you've got to listen to the similarities and not the differences. It's so easy to say, whoa, my name is not Paul. I would not have picked Russell Wilson in the first round of my fantasy football draft. I, therefore, cannot be an alcoholic. That is our rational, pragmatic, alcoholic thinking, talking. So listen to the similarities, not the differences. Before I get started with part two, there are a couple underlying themes that I want to discuss in my story and probably your story as well. There is a progression in this disease. I've said it in previous podcasts, is alcohol kills by inches. What I mean by that is hard drugs like meth and heroin, they kill by the miles. Other drugs, say cocaine maybe, they kill by the yard. And alcohol, it kills by the inches. In other words, alcohol is on turtle speed while all that other hard shit is on bunny, cheetah, and freaking Ferrari speed. Bad thing about that is alcohol is killing you, but it's happening at such a slow pace at times that you don't even realize it. And alcoholism, as my man Paul Sheenham or Paul Gandalf says in an earlier interview, is the ism stands for incredibly short memory. We forget how bad it really was just one week ago, one year ago four or five years ago, because alcohol, the progression of it happens so slowly with the majority of us that we tend to forget how bad it really was. The disease, it creeps up in our mind and talks to us in our own voice. And it says, look, that was so long ago. It really wasn't that bad. You can't be an alcoholic because it's been seven years since your last DUI. It's been eight months since your last blackout. You just can't be an alcoholic. But that is the addiction talking. Another one is the geographical cure, which if you've tried to quit drinking or make any other significant life changes, you're probably guilty of this. That is where part two of my story resumes. I made the geographical cure. I left all my problems, presumably, in Spain. 
When I got on an airplane, crossed the Atlantic Ocean, nothing was coming with me. My addiction, little did I know, was in the airplane in the back row. So I was back in Colorado, living with good old mom and dad, Molly and Perry. Thanks, guys. My plan to keep my drinking under wraps was working pretty well. I allowed myself three nights a week to drink. I stuck to that plan pretty well, but usually, the way I would justify it, sometimes I would get three nights at the end of the week, and then the first three nights at the beginning of the next week. So I would drink six nights in a row, and then I would have to go through like 10 hard days of not drinking. You get the point, justifying it. But usually those three nights of drinking would happen pretty quick in the week. And then when I did drink, I was still losing that battle 99 out of 100 times. At this point, 100 out of 100 times when I would come home, look up at my parents' liquor cabinet, and try to convince myself to not drink. But eventually, I would reach up, grab a $100 bottle of whiskey or whatnot, drink it, and the next day go to the liquor store and be like, damn, dad, why can't you just drink the cheap shit? So at this time frame, while I'm living at home, my mental health is recovering, my physical health is getting better, and I'm starting to feel more confident, like I got this drinking thing. I had managed to sleep without alcohol. It was not chemical-free of sleep. I was always doing Tylenol PMs, but I had managed to go four or five days in a row without drinking, convincing myself that I'm still not an alcoholic. So then in 2009, I decide to move to Seattle, Washington, where I will apply for grad school at the University of Washington. My brother lives in Seattle. Great city. Like the Seahawks. Why not? So I board an airplane, planning to leave my controlled drinking problems, shall I say. I knew when I started, it was very difficult to stop. Hell, I couldn't stop after I started drinking. And I plan to leave that at home in Colorado. Because seriously, probably the only reason why I was drinking so much in Colorado, even though they were only three nights a week, but blacking out usually those three nights a week, was because I was living at home. I was 26, 27, working in a restaurant, bartending. Hell, that's what I was supposed to be doing, right? Isn't that what other people do my age? Create drinking plans and only drink three nights a week, but black out when they drink? Yeah, that's got to be normal, right? Well, it wasn't. But my plan, geographically, was to leave those issues in Colorado. I get to Seattle around August or September, and within a day or two, after my new roommate goes to bed, I'm cruising through the cabinets. Guess what I'm doing? I'm drinking his alcohol. Being the new good roommate that I am, the next day, I go replace all the alcohol. Damn, there are a lot of taxes on the liquor in Seattle, plus I had no money, and replacing all that alcohol was definitely a strain on the wallet. So at this time in my life, the move was exciting, but there was just an underlying blah going on. Nothing was exciting. I couldn't wait for the nights when I could drink. Meeting people in a new city without alcohol was just not an option. The anxiety that I planned on leaving in Colorado, that had also come to Seattle with me. Same with the mild haze and depression and just the uneasy feeling that something might be wrong with me. It couldn't have been the fact that I was an alcoholic. Definitely not, or at least I thought. I saw a therapist in Seattle, and I was on antidepressants. I went on some anti-anxiety medicine, and of course, I lied to this therapist about my drinking habits because that couldn't have been the problem. I was addressing issues that weren't really the issue at all. So this blah emptiness and boredom, whatever it may be, lead me to come to a conclusion, or let's just say an experiment, on January 1st, 2010, that I'm going to quit drinking for 31 days. Call it a New Year's resolution, whatever. 
on January 1st, 2010, I decided to quit drinking for one month. So on New Year's the night before, got blacked out, spent a lot of money, and the next day, detoxing before my shift of work at the Northgate Mall at the California Pizza Kitchen, great place, kidding, I went to the Barnes & Noble in the mall, hands shaking, feeling like utter crap, and read a book about alcohol. For the first time, kind of got honest with myself and learned more about my medical condition. While reading, I was only focusing on the differences, not the similarities. And after finishing that book mid-January, I came to the conclusion that I was not an alcoholic, but if I kept drinking, there were going to be a lot of health ramifications and problems coming my way. But hey, I dodged a huge bullet because I'm not an alcoholic. I make it 31 days sober, and I decide to keep on going. I had a party at my house right around the first month mark, and instead of telling anybody that I wasn't drinking, I remember dumping out a beer bottle and filling it up with water, ashamed that I wasn't drinking. But I had momentum on my side. I was feeling good. I lost like five to seven pounds. I was kind of on a pink cloud. I had been drinking heavily for the last five, six, seven, eight years, and this is the first time my body and mind had a chance to recuperate. At the end of February, I went to a festival called Telus in Canada with my brother and his girlfriend with every intention not to drink. I made it the first two nights sober, but for some reason, night three, I drank. Guess what happened? I couldn't stop after I started. I think I drank till the sun came up by myself. Car ride home, miserable. I knew I was making the right decision to not drink. It wasn't because I was an alcoholic. I just knew inside not drinking was better for me. So I was at it again. I made it all the way till June that same year till I drank the end of a bottle of rum to help me go to bed. There's this whole concept of sunscreen that I didn't really understand at that time on that trip. I got so freaking sunburned at snorkeling that day. There was a beach party and in my hostel room at like 1 a.m., I'm rolling around on my bed with sun blisters on my back with no possible chance of sleeping. I look over, there's a bottle with probably three to four shots of rum in it tell myself, okay, we're going to drink this to go to sleep, but that is it. I drank it. And mysteriously enough, after that, the feeling in my head after that drink was like, Paul, this was your last drink of alcohol. And it felt good. I went to bed. And when I woke up, I started nearly two and a half years of sobriety with my plan to just not drink. Why was I not drinking? Well, I wasn't an alcoholic. That's just silly. I don't want to be labeled with that social stigma. I wasn't drinking because when I started drinking, I couldn't stop. Looking back, obviously I was an alcoholic. I do grad school sober. I do my internship sober. I moved to Montana sober. I finished grad school with a 4.0. I am kicking butt in sobriety. There's this thing called a pink cloud. I was on it for at least a year. But that second year of sobriety, the blah, the boredom, and just the everyday life struggle kind of crept in. I got bored and randomly at the end of August or early September of 2012, I went to an AA meeting with a friend. Surprisingly, you would think I'd walk in there and feel right at home. There's 30 people just like me. I've never met them, but we both have the same disease called alcoholism. What happened was the complete opposite. I walked out of that meeting with complete elation. I was so happy because my brilliant mind I deduced one thing after that meeting, and this was it. I was not an alcoholic. Reason being, for one hour in that meeting, I listened to the differences and not the similarities. In that meeting, I heard stories of divorce, bankruptcy, hospitalization, jail time, 
prison time, felonies, assaults, death. And my beautiful, brilliant, addicted mind fabricated a conclusion during that meeting that just said, look, Paul, you have never experienced any of this stuff. Therefore, you cannot possibly be an alcoholic. What I know now is there's a keyword missing in that equation. It's a yet. All that is a yet scale. You have not experienced any of this stuff yet. And even after that meeting when I was drinking, some of those yets did happen. I'll get to those in a bit. I'm not sure if it was that night, but I know it was at least two or three days afterward, maybe that weekend, that I drank for the first time after nearly two and a half years of sobriety. What happened? I picked up right where I left off. I drank all the booze in the house, and I found myself at 2.30ish in the morning after the gas stations closed and can no longer sell alcohol. I was Googling rubbing alcohol and hydrogen peroxide, seeing which one I could drink to keep my buzz going, of course, because I couldn't stop drinking after I'd started. So Googling which one I could drink that would cause the least amount of bodily harm to my intestines, my stomach, and internal systems. There was a sliver of intelligence in my brain that had not been completely turned off by the alcohol because I decided not to drink. Turns out both of those, if you chug them, can have some pretty drastic negative effects on your body. So after that, I decided I was doing the right thing by not drinking. Not because I was an alcoholic, but because it was pretty hard to stop after I'd started drinking. I like to travel, so I did a two and a half month trip in Central America. While on that trip, I drank one time in November. A couple times at the end of December in 2012 while in Costa Rica. I remember drinking December 30th, 2012. Once I started, I couldn't stop, and the sun was up on December 31st. Felt like shit. While taking a nap, I told myself, all right, we're going to drink one more time tonight. And then on January 1st, 2013, we're going to be done for good. Sound familiar, huh? Well, I woke up from that nap on December 31st with such an eager spirit, I decided, why wait a day? So I didn't even drink that night on New Year's. And this eager spirit and incredibly short memory ism. And the fact that I had already used up my pink cloud, <laughs> I lasted 10 months this time. My plan, just to not drink. So I think around September or early October, I remember telling my girlfriend at the time, just saying, hey, I'm going to give this drinking thing a go. She was a normal drinker. She thought it was cool I didn't drink. And she didn't really care that I started to drink. But sure enough, in that relationship, my priority wasn't her. It became the alcohol. I'm not going to blame that relationship on the alcohol. It probably wasn't going to work out anyways. She was a barrel racer in the Montana rodeo circuit. And if you know my history and allergies with horses, that's a relationship that's just probably never going to work. But while I was drinking, I had no emotional capacity to give to a relationship. So I say the alcohol wasn't the factor in that one, but it probably was as well as the horses. <laughs> All right. So I drink from September, October, and November 27th after doing like a five or six day binge after Thanksgiving. It is done. I am going to start my new life of sobriety. Jeez, after that, it was a blur, really. I remember getting five days, seven days, two weeks of sobriety and just falling face first off the wagon. I'm talking face first in the mud in a pile of horse hair, just getting my ass kicked. 
It was early February on a Monday. I started drinking and didn't stop for nearly a week. So at this time, the binges are becoming longer and longer. Also, it's harder to get the alcohol out of my system. I don't know if my tolerance is getting higher, but if I would wake up with a shred of alcohol still in my system, I would go right back to the bottle, be it the grocery store, liquor store, wherever, just start drinking. So I started drinking that Monday, and it didn't matter that I was a captain of a dodgeball team, and we had a game that Wednesday or Thursday night. I was still drinking on the way to the dodgeball game. And Nate, who is a very good friend of mine, one of my best friends, in fact, he has been sober for over five years now. I interviewed him in podcast episode three, four, five, or six. He was on my dodgeball team. It was halftime. We were down by two games, I was told, because I was blacked out at the time. And I was giving some crazy inspirational halftime speech, like bringing in everybody, my hands on everybody's shoulders, we're in, I'm rocking, leaning back and forth, saying, hey guys, this is what we got to do in the second half if we have want to have any chance of beating this team in dodgeball. My buddy Nate, a couple weeks after, when I came clean and said I was drunk that whole week, he was like, man, I thought I smelled vodka in your breath, but there was no way that you were able to give that speech while I thought you were drunk. Turns out I was blacked out, not only drunk, and the speech wasn't that good. We got our butts kicked in the second half, I was told. About a couple days after our butt whooping and dodgeball, I wake up one morning and realize I need help. Guess who I call? My number one fan, my number one supporter, my mom. The call, although different state, different wireless network, really had the same contents. Mom, I can't beat this. So I found an AA meeting at a hospital, and when I came out of the AA meeting, my mom told me she'd purchased a flight. So she came out to Montana, cooked me some homemade meals. We both went to AA meetings together. She had a plan of attack for me to stay sober. Bless your heart, Molly. You are a saint. I could not have made it through that binge without you, nor have I could have made one year of sobriety without you. So I make it to about 43 days of sobriety and this damn incredible short memory thing, which we're going to get into real shortly here, kicks into high gear. I'm at a bar with a girl I met on some online dating site and a shot of tequila lands itself at the bar. I'm looking down at her thinking of 43 days of sobriety in my brain An incredible short memory was like, Hey, it's not that bad. We can do just one, just somebody punch me in the face if they can see me taking a drink now because it's not going to be just one and guess what that wasn't the case I had probably 15 drinks that night kept drinking for the next week and I also tell you in a podcast previously I go to Machu Picchu as a high school chaperone and I drink all the way up into the point where I get off the airplane and meet the kids in the small town of Urubamba where we start working at an orphanage so I start working at the orphanage I'm in Peru We just finished doing the Machu Picchu Trail, and I land 10 days of sobriety under my belt. Cannot be an alcoholic because A, I'm traveling, and B, what you do while you're traveling in late 20s, early 30s is you drink. That's what you do. That's what normal people do. But after 10 days of sobriety, I managed to convince myself I was not an alcoholic. After the trip, I was planning a two-month trip by myself, which I like to travel. I've done several solo trips in the past, and they're great. So I said goodbye to the high school kids and my best friend, Brady, who was also a chaperone on the trip, and with every intention of staying sober for the rest of my life. 
I pulled out my map of the city of Cusco, walked to my hostel, and within probably 45 minutes, I was drinking at the bar. So the next two months was just that. Me getting three, four, five days of sobriety, convincing myself that I was not an alcoholic, and drinking again. A couple podcasts ago, I talk about me trying to coax an alligator close enough to me so I could pet it. There's even a photo of this on the recoveryelevator.com website. Go to podcast, and I believe it's episode 27 or 28. But I was on a jungle tour in Bolivia with like four or five days of sobriety. I convinced myself, look, dude, I'm not an alcoholic. We ended up at a small village. When I say village, this is just like a shack on the river in the middle of nowhere in the Amazon jungle. There's a woman that sells 40s or liters of beer, shall we say. Why everybody else is enjoying the sunset, taking photos, sharing stories of how marvelous the day of touring these rivers and canals and swimming with pink dolphins were. Guess where I was? I was down chugging liters of beer, sparking up a conversation with the bartender or shop owner with one goal in mind, to get shit-faced. I did get shit-faced and I also tried to pet an alligator. A couple more stories that stick out to me in that trip was my mind trying to tell me or justify reasons that I could drink. God darn it, Chile is a big country. There were bus rides. I would go buy a bus ticket, look down on my ticket and say, holy crap, this is a 14 hour bus ride. 21 hours on a bus? You bet your ass we're drinking. We might be trying to quit drinking, but that's okay. We can drink now because there's nowhere gonna be able to sleep on this bus without alcohol. So twice I bought bottles of vodka and twice I threw up all over the bus. Well, actually one time I made it off the bus, but twice I drank so much that one time I threw up on myself and all over the seat, all over the ground. And the second time I managed to run up to the front of the bus and be like, Hey, hey, stop, 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 stop. Run outside the bus, throw up on the side of the road. Everybody there saw me and the bus driver even apologized the second time. He's like, Hey man, lo siento. I'm sorry for the curvy roads. I'll try to go slower. And I'm like, no dude, believe me. It's not you. I'm just a total sack of shit, but I'm not a sack of shit. I'm not. And you can't, I can't say that to myself, be so hard on myself because alcoholism, it's a disease. I'm not a bad person for getting shit faced on a bus, not enjoying the magical scenery, of the Andes mountains. I think I took no photos on those bus journeys, no photos at all of the beautiful snow capped Andean peaks. Now for that, Paul, you are a dumbass. Geographical cure 3.0. I come back from that trip from South America, meet my parents and my brother and my friends at Lake Powell, Utah. This is a sanctuary where I have been going my entire life with every indication that my day of sobriety has already been logged when I got back from the trip to South America. <sighs> Damn it. Guess what happens? I'm on the trip. My brother and my dad and my mom are really the only ones that know my true issues with alcohol, but not to the extent that I tell them about on the trip. So I start drinking and it started on day one of the trip before everybody got there. My step grandpa died. So my mom's a wreck and he was actually like my grandpa. It was a hard piece of news to hear. So with really no other natural coping tools while they're downstairs, I'm upstairs on a houseboat drinking. The next morning I wake up probably like 5 a.m. to feed good old Ben the standard poodle. I feed my parents dogs as well while I'm feeding them. Seems like a pretty good idea to pop open this enormous cooler full of booze and start drinking beer. Before anybody had even woken up, I think I was five to six beers deep. This process repeated itself for like four to five days. And here's the best part. Nobody had any idea. 
I was hiding bottles. I was hiding glasses. I was hiding cans. But us alcoholics, we are so damn good at this. I remembered where I hid everything, I think. (laughs) And I would go back at night when people were asleep and dispose of the evidence. But about the fourth morning, I came to the realization that Paul... You got to create some accountability or or do something different because this way of life, it's absolutely miserable. So I think it's 7 a.m., probably like five, six, maybe let's just go with the magical number seven, maybe seven beers deep. My parents are asleep. I wake them up and just spill it out. Hey, guys, what's going on? Well, we're, 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 we're sleeping. How about you, Paul? Oh, nothing. Just want to let you know that I'm an alcoholic. Just want to let you know that I'm an alcoholic. Uh, just want to just want to let you know that I'm an alcoholic. It took me three times to get it out, and I didn't say it even like that. But I came out, and it was hard. I told him that, sure, I don't drink, and you guys know that. But the issue is a lot larger than I've been playing it off. I've been sweeping it under the rug for four or five years now, but I need help. But that's where I'm at. Felt great to get it off my chest. And internally, I had developed a new tool of helping me stay sober, which I really wasn't aware of yet. That was called creating accountability. I had told my mom and my dad really how serious the issue of my drinking was. Later that day, in the bottom of the boat, I tell my brother. And he's like, man, I shoot, I know you don't drink, but I, I had no idea it was that bad. The last night of that trip, a funny thing happens. We're at the campfire, and somebody goes, hey, Mark. And my brother goes in and says, hey, does anybody want a beer? Both of my friends say, yeah, we'll take a beer. He comes out empty-handed. And he was like, "Uh, I think we misjudged the amount of beers we were going to drink each night. And I, in my mind, I'm like, oh shit, I'm busted. But I was fully ready to come clean, if they asked. I could see the fingers on their hands going, them doing the math, saying, okay, three people here, eight beers a night times three. They were like, yeah, we, we bought enough beer. How in the hell do we run out of alcohol? But here's the difference between a normal drinker and an alcoholic. When they realized they were fully out of alcohol their last night on a camping trip, they moved past the subject pretty quickly. It was like, well, looks like we're out of alcohol, guys. Hey, how do you think the Broncos are going to do this season? They didn't care, really. For me, I would have been devastated. I probably would have whittled a canoe and an oar out of driftwood, paddled to the marina, broke into the gas station, and got alcohol. For a normal drinker, it wasn't that big of a deal. So Ron and Steve and Mark, this is me coming clean. I drank all of your beer. Maybe they already knew it. Maybe they didn't. But I probably had 30 to 40 of their beers. And I really do feel terrible about it. Geographical Cure 4.0. Lake Powell's over. South America is over. Spain is over. Colorado's over. Washington is over. I'm going to go back to Montana with a new goal to be sober. Ah, God darn it. I get a DUI on July 16th, 2014. I get a DUI driving to work. Shit is going bad. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I cannot stop drinking. The fact knowing that you're facing something that you cannot beat is simply demoralizing. I was drinking wine on the way to work, got pulled over, told the police officer what's going on, that I was suicidal. So I get a DUI. I spend the night in a padded room. When I come out the next morning, they say, hey, your brother's here to pick you up. I'm like, my brother, he lives in Washington. But when you've got a rock star support system and family, and in a small town in Montana, 
they care about you. They called my family. They took the issue seriously, which it was. And my brother came out as well as my mom. Now, this is DUI number one officially, but I'm going to say it right now. I've got four. I got one in 2005 that got let go due to some paperwork not getting filled out correctly. In the summer of 2006, I was being given a roadside sobriety test. Probably had four or five beers. I wasn't drunk, but definitely over the .08 legal limit in Colorado. And during my roadside, they found a dead body, which was why I was stopped. I was following my friend home, and he was shit-faced drunk. He rolled his car, ejected, and died. So the cop was like, all right, get out of here. Go home. I got another DUI in Spain in 2007. It's not a DUI. Their system is really strange. They gave me the breathalyzer, and then they followed that BAC level with a fine level on a chart. So I had to pay a fine, I think, of like three or 400 euros. And then they also, with the BAC on that same chart, said, okay, you need to sit here parked, not moving in your vehicle, ignition off till 5.15 in the morning, <laughs> is what they said. I was terrified. I really was. And after sitting there for about 45 minutes, probably two hours short of the 5.15 in the morning mark. I'm like, all right, got back on the freeway, drove the car home, which had no name registered to me. I had no business being in that car. It was actually a Spanish friend. Let me borrow that car and drive into the airport. But guess what I did when I got back? I went on like a five or six day binge. And this last DUI, I almost welcomed it because I knew that if I didn't change something, all those yets that I talked about earlier, they were going to happen. I'm lucky I got that DUI, I think. I could have killed somebody. I was driving with like a .16. I felt sober, but that's just because we have high tolerances. A .16 to a non-alcoholic, they'd probably be tipping over on the roadside. So that was it. I told them I was suicidal. I could not stop drinking. So I'm dealing with therapists that summer, taking anxiety medications, but trying to stay away from the serious anxiety medications like benzos, which are actually like alcohol in a pill. I have an appointment with my normal therapist, but when I got there, she was out of town and somebody was filling in. And I said, hey, can I get a couple of benzos just to get me a couple days of sobriety that I can build on? It's not this doctor's fault at all, but I was asking for like one or two benzos. I got a prescription for 30 course I didn't say anything fill the script went home and started my new path to sobriety these 30 benzos were gonna get me on track to sobriety so day one I don't take the one to two recommended benzos I think I take like four or five the next day I am struggling around 4 or 5 p.m. I look in the bottle and I've got like 12 benzos left Benzos are benzodiazepines, if you're wondering, like Valium, Xanax, Clonopin. They're what you take if you have an anxiety attack, I guess, for normal people. But for alcoholics, Valium and Xanax, it really just acts like alcohol. So after doing like 18 Xanax or Diazepams, I'm not really sure which medication it was because it is all a huge fog. And only like 25 hours after being prescribed the pills, an idea around 6 or 7 or 8 p.m., just popped into my head. It was an idea like, hey, let's go grab some ice cream, Mike, or hey, 
I wonder what's playing in the movie theater today. Let's go check it out. It was an idea that popped into my mind so suddenly, but at the same time, it seemed like such a good idea. And this was the idea. It was suicide. Within about 30 seconds of the idea of suicide popping into my brain, it had become the best solution to a temporary problem. In fact, it would have been a permanent solution to a temporary problem. In my eyes, I had tried everything to quit drinking. And I couldn't beat it. I could not beat this thing called alcohol. So, without a suicide note, with any plan, no glorification, no phone calls, no social media posts, I decided to do it. I decided to commit suicide. I walk into my bathroom, dump the remaining 10 to 12 benzos out in my hand, fill up a glass of water, I take them. Pull out the other drawers, I think I got like 40 or 50 Tylenols, take them. Other drawers, take whatever I can find. I think it might have been 60, 70, 80 pills. When I swallowed them all in like 5 to 10 increments, but after getting like 80 pills down, I was like, all right, I'm still on board with this plan. There was no note. There was no long-term thought process in this plan. It was an idea that just popped into my head. But after the pills were down, there was no second thought being like, oh, oh shit, wait, wait, wait a second. I better call somebody before passing out. So I get into bed and my beloved standard poodle, Ben, He's sitting there right next to me in bed. I give him a kiss. I look at Ben and I say, Ben, it's going to be like two to three really crappy days. You're going to be hungry. You're going to be thirsty. And you're not going to get any exercise, bud. But eventually, probably my parents are going to take you. And you're going to be in such a better place. Gave Ben a kiss. Pulled up the sheets. Turned off the lights. And just drifted off. For some reason, the next morning, my eyelids opened. I had done some research a couple months after I got sober to the amount of pills that I took, especially the 12 Xanax or diazepam, whatever, and that amount alone should have done it. But when I woke up the next morning, I God, I don't even remember the date, because that should be a date that's equally remarkable to me as April 10, my birthday, September 7, my sobriety date, and also some random date in August where I failed at suicide. I failed at many things. There's many things that I am not good at, but I am so glad that I suck at suicide. But I woke up that morning and it wasn't like hallelujah. I threw my hands up in the air, hugged Ben, did a couple laps around the room, jumped in the air, clicked my heels together. And we're like, dude, I'm alive. The feeling was like, oh shit, I thought of all the tasks that I still had to do and the idea popped back in my head. However, I was a little bit more sober than the night before. I wasn't sober from alcohol. I was more sober from the pills. My mind was clear from all the pills that I had taken, but I wasn't like, man. But the idea was somewhat still there. The good thing was, was I had no more Xanax left. Now, a lot of times with alcoholics, they commit suicide sober. Here's why. There's so much pain and suffering while sober, but when they take that drink, it usually is just a quick fix. You know, they have the plans to commit suicide. It's like, hey, I'm going to get drunk and then commit suicide. But once they start drinking, all the pain goes away. And guess what? 
They don't commit suicide. So it was that near-death experience that caused me to really make some changes in my life. Because I know I wouldn't have just been killing myself. I would have been killing my parents, my brother, and a whole lot of pain would have been experienced by others. It would have been a selfish act that wouldn't have accomplished anything. So a couple weeks later, after just squeaking by in life, I go to my fantasy football draft with every intention not to drink. I'm at the Broncos game. I know I've got that feeling that I'm going to drink. I leave the game. While leaving the game, I draft a text message to all my best friends, my brother, who already is aware of the alcohol problems, and my seven other closest friends. That text message, along with telling my parents while they were sleeping in the houseboat at Lake Powell, and then telling my brother in the boat later that day, that text message and those conversations, little did I know, were putting me on the path towards sobriety. It was creating accountability. I told all of my friends, don't worry, stay at the game, I will be fine. One of my friends, who has a family member who was dealing with alcohol, came back to the hotel. I was like two sleeping pills deep, but I confessed to him about the fact that I had previously tried to commit suicide just a week or two previous, and that I knew that things needed to change. So he left, went back out with my friends. I went back to my hotel room with every determination not to drink. Hell, I was two ambience deep. Paul, just fucking go to bed. That's all you got to do. But like Denzel Washington in flight, I think there was 10 to 12 beers in the hotel room. I saw him and just crushed him. So we are at the end of August in 2014. There were a lot of other shitty moments But the highlights, it's the DUI and the suicide attempt. In fact, every day was a new low. Every day was a shitty moment. But on August 29th, I'm working and I'm drinking and I'm driving. This was a pivotal day in my sobriety. You know my sobriety date is September 7th. But on August 29th, I make a call. I call a friend and say, I need help. This is the first call that I've ever made of this sorts. I've called my mom. I've told my brother. I texted my seven best friends, but I knew if I didn't make this call, suicide, it wasn't a matter of if, it was just when, when that was going to happen again. So I made some more calls, got my work covered, somebody to show up and cover my shift. And I had a friend named Christine come up and pick me up from my job. While driving home, I was crying. I said, I have to go to rehab. I am done. I cannot fight this anymore. When I came out of the canyon where there is no service, I started calling my parents, which I have told that story a couple times in previous episodes, but I'll say it again real quick. I called my brother, mom, dad, brother, mom, dad, brother, mom, and dad. Why the hell isn't somebody picking up? Finally, after like 15 calls, my dad picks up. I hear it in his voice. He's like, hey, Paul. Instead of the, hey, Paul, how's it going? I knew something was up. I said, Dad, what, what's going on? He says, hey, we're here spreading Ellen's ashes. Now, Ellen is like a family member to us. She's been like Aunt Ellen to me my entire life. I realized at that moment, as how selfish as we all are, the moment could wait. I need to go to rehab, but I'm guaranteeing it tomorrow I'll still need to go to rehab. So I decided that this night can be about them, and tomorrow it can all be about me then. So I say, oh, yeah, yeah, great. Well, well, well tell, tell Ellen's family I'm sorry and, and call me tomorrow. So 
the next morning, my dad calls me back. I picked up the phone, still an alcoholic, still in an extremely low place, but something was different. Call it a higher power. Call it whatever the hell you want. Something had shifted in my mind. I had made a decision to go to rehab. So that day he said, hey, what's going on? I was like, hey, not much. Just wondering how it went in Utah with with Ellen's family and the, the spreading of her ashes. I decided to wait one more day. And if I still wanted to go to rehab the following day, I'd call my parents. It could be all about me that day. So I hung up the phone, did something I didn't really want to do. I went to three AA meetings. Next day, did the same. Following day, I did the same. Now this is August 29th. You might be saying to yourself, wait a second, your sobriety date is September 7th. It's true. I think I drank once or twice more that week, but really with a pretty lackadaisical effort. What I mean by that is I drank, but something had shifted inside me. I was ready to quit drinking. And you hear it in a podcast. In fact, Lindsay talks about it in her interview today. A lot of people are ready to quit drinking, but they're not ready at the same time. I had both readies. I was ready to quit drinking and mentally with my higher power or whatever, I was ready. So my last drink came Saturday, September 6th, 2014. Next day was Sunday, September 7th, 2014. I really don't even remember my last drink that Saturday. In fact, I vaguely remember dumping it out. I remember going on a hike Sunday, September 7th, that morning with a new hope, a new feeling that things were going to be different. And they were. There was a shift in my mentality and my thinking. An untangible change had occurred with me. And that is why it's so difficult from outsiders to quantify or measure the effectiveness of AA or other 12-step programs or really put a solution on paper scientifically because I don't think there's a scientific answer. People have asked me a lot, especially since this podcast has come out, how the hell do I quit drinking? In part three of my story, I'm going to tell you what has worked for me. What might work for you will be completely different. And there is no one reason or one thing that I am doing. It's not a secret that us sober people know. So that is going to conclude part two of my story. Sorry these stories got a little bit winded also. Every single one of my interviewees could also share that story. And I'd be hanging on to every word for one hour, two hours, three hours. My story, it's not more important than yours. It's not any better. It's probably just the same if you focus on the similarities. So now let's hear from our interviewee. Lindsay, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Recovery Elevator, Lindsay is 32. She's got two kids. She lives in Melbourne, Florida. And Lindsay, I'm going to let you answer the next question. How long have you been sober? I have been sober for 17 months. 17 months. Congratulations. (laughs) It's amazing. Lindsay, I'm going to ask you a question. I just got a year of sobriety. What are the next three to four to five to six months going to be like for me? Honestly, it's it's been pretty smooth sailing. As long as I just re, you know remind myself the reason I'm here is because of 
the actions that I, you know, have been able to take since I've been sober. And it's just kind of a way of life. And I find it, you know, the first year is rough. You know, it's just there's a slippery slope once you get a year because it's almost like it's such a goal to get a year that you could be like, yay, I'm I'm done. I graduated. I'm not an alcoholic. So it's just important to keep the reminder that you are and how much, you know, how far you've come. But I think it gets easier every every day. Lindsay, let's chat about the podcast title, Recovery Elevator. Talk to me about your elevator. When did you decide that it was time to quit drinking? I I honestly, when I first started drinking, I didn't start drinking until after high school. And I always knew that I drank differently, but it didn't affect my life. I was able to manage it, but I did get drunk every single night. But I, you know, I justified it because I had straight A's. I was in college. I had three jobs. It wasn't until I got married and started having kids and I always thought that I would quit drinking once once I had the kids. I was able to quit during the pregnancy, but as soon as I had the baby, I started drinking, I mean, literally right away. And it wasn't until about a year after he was born that I it was coming it was becoming apparent that I had a problem and I decided I would stop and I couldn't. And I was shocked and scared, but I I kept going. I I just kind of brushed it off. I made excuses in my head, and then the consequences started building up. And then I started going to AA, and I still, I, I couldn't get sober. My last bottom was, I had been in AA for four years. I think I got 30 days twice, and one of those included the treatment center. But my last bottom was, I basically was running out of everything. I didn't get a DUI, which I should have had millions, but I had been divorced by then. My kids were pretty much taken away. My parents said that they weren't going to support me anymore. I was working, but on the verge of losing my jobs. Basically what happened is I was so utterly disgusted and miserable, and I couldn't stop drinking. It was despair. And so basically, I had woken up after a 21-day binge, which was horrible. I would drink, and I would pass out, and I would wake up. I didn't know if it was 3 a.m. or 3 p.m., and I was scared to stop because I had heard so many stories about seizures, and I basically just knew this was it. And I I gave myself 24 hours, and I just knew I was going to stop one way or another, and that was either to really get help and go to treatment or be locked up somewhere to stop drinking, or I was going to kill myself. And I, I and I really didn't care which one. It was really an eerie feeling. I just knew it was going to end one way or another, and I didn't care, but I was done. And it wasn't jail or anything like that. It was just this utter disgust and emotional hell. And I, I did call my parents, and by 5 a.m. I was on my way to rehab, and... I drank all the way there, but my last drink was on April 10th, 2014. April 10th is a fantastic day for number one, it's my birthday, and number two, it's your sobriety birthday, so I will never forget that, Lindsay. <laughs> and stop. actually, I have to take that back because April April 10th is the date I drank my entire way there, so April 11th is my sobriety birthday, and the reason that that's good is my sister's birthday is also April 10th. 
And I am so glad I didn't take that from her also. <laughs> so actually, April 11th. So you can keep your birthday, and I can have my own day. <laughs> we are very selfish as alcoholics, so that's nice of you to not take your sister's birthday for, from here on out moving forward. That's, that's really nice of you, Lindsay. <laughs> I know. I, I've, I've stolen the spotlight in my whole life from my sister, so I'm really glad that it's April 11th. But April 10th is a good day. <laughs> that is too funny. I want to get into more of when you quit and, you know, in AA for four years, but let's back it up to a year after you had your first child and you said you tried to drink, but you couldn't stop. What was that like? Did, and did you ever try to moderate it? You know, when you tried to quit drinking, you realized you couldn't stop. Did you say like, okay, well, let's try this plan. Let's switch to drinking this type of beer or, or this type of alcohol. Talk to me about that. What was that like? You know, I, based, I, I didn't really try that necessarily. You know, I thought the whole, okay, well, what if I just drink on the weekends? I just knew that wasn't going to work for me. I mean, I guess in my head, what would happen is I would wake up and be like, okay, I'm just going to have one bottle of wine. So I would go to the grocery store and buy one bottle. Well, I would finish that off by the afternoon and I've, of course, I have to go get the second bottle. So it turned into that. But I pretty much knew right away it wasn't going to be switching it up. I was a wine drinker. I never drank hard alcohol unless I was really desperate. And quite honestly, I, I just have the chemistry in my body where if I smell it, my personality changes. I'm either a really happy drunk or I'm really mean. And it doesn't take much for me, which I think is kind of surprising. But I get drunk really fast and, you know, I didn't necessarily build a tolerance and that's why in my head I was like, well, maybe I'm not that bad because if I'm just drinking a bottle of wine, which only an alcoholic would say that, like I only drink a bottle of wine at night, that's not that much. But yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't really try to switch it up too much. I tried to stop multiple ways. I tried an abuse. We got a breathalyzer to like I would have to do a breathalyzer when my husband would get home from work, and I tried to get away with it. You know, I, my parents had me taking, you know, urine tests, but I tried everything to stop without having to go to AA or anything, and I wasn't ready, and I hated that I wasn't ready, but I wasn't. Uh, well, I want to talk to you more about are you ready or when you're ready, but it sounds like you were married. Your parents made you do urine tests. Talk to me about how drinking has affected some of these relationships with the closest people in your life. I was such a liar and manipulator. I, I couldn't be trusted. I had a couple really good best friends, and some of them had had experience with alcoholism in their family. And basically, they said, I'm not going to watch you do this. I'm not doing this anymore. I lost two, in particular, best friends. And it was like a breakup. I mean, it was, it was, it, it hurt. And I, I could see my part, but I brushed it off. And it was easier to be like, oh, they're so, they're so mean. I can't believe they're not my friend. And then my family, I just was a liar. And I was so mean. And I really meant it. Every time I tried to quit, I really meant it, but it became like a broken record, you know, like I'm, I'm going to do it this time and this time is different because of this. And, you know, thank God my, my, my biological children were young enough that they didn't completely understand. I did have two stepkids um, that I really hurt. I embarrassed them. And, you know, I was a happy-go-lucky drunk on the outside. And then in the home, I was really mean to my ex-husband. I don't even remember a lot of the things that I said. It was ugly. 
it actually, it horrifies me. And the problem that I kind of had is I would get sober and start remembering the things I did, and it was almost just too much. Like, I felt like there was no fixing or healing this, so screw it, I'm going to drink again. Because I couldn't wrap my head around the person I had become. Ugh, and gosh, I, I understand everything you just said. Alcoholism is a communal disease, and I'm listening to the similarities, Lindsay, here, and not the differences. Mm-hmm. And gosh, it's it's hard for me to hear this stuff. And we have incredibly short memories, the ism part of our alcoholism. That's why I do this podcast too, is to help me remember of how bad it can get. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, honestly, I hope I don't ever forget the last day that was the last day of my drinking. I had given myself before so much wiggle room, um, like I, I'm going to quit drinking, but there was this little piece of me that gave me the opportunity to quit or, you know, to keep drinking. And in my head, I thought I could fool everyone. I was just like, well, if I have five days, but I drink, I just won't seven the next day. I'll have six. I'll just subtract it because I was more, I was so hung up on the days and more of an ego thing. It wasn't that absolute utter despair. And, and quite frankly, I, I wanted to do it for a long time for my children, but I didn't fully want to do it for myself. And I always hate that when people say you have to do it for yourself because I thought I, I will I will take a bullet for my kids. I love my kids more than anything, but the truth is as soon as I take a drink of alcohol, alcohol is more important than my own children. It's disgusting and it's hard to say, but it's true. It takes over. And, you know, it wasn't until I actually could surrender. And what was hard for me is being in AA and going constantly and hearing you're not ready you haven't surrendered and I just wanted to be like how how like can someone just push me to my bottom like I I wanted to hit rock bottom and I didn't know how I wanted to surrender but I didn't know how and when people would say well maybe you just don't want it or maybe you're not ready I was but I was in such hold of this disease that I, I, I could not, I can see it now, I couldn't do it. I couldn't stop, even though I wanted to, because it won out. Every, it, I didn't have long enough to get it out of my system to even give myself a chance to stay sober. Lindsay, that's what I want to talk about next, is you said you were so ready to quit drinking, but at the same time, you weren't ready. Can you expand a little bit more about that concept? Because for me... That was extremely confusing when I was trying to get sober, but now it makes a lot of sense. But please expand a little bit on that concept. So part of it is I lived a double life. I was all about image, and I had, you know, the white picket fence and a nice house, and my husband was an attorney, and I volunteered, and I was, you know, took on these stepkids, and I was the soccer coach, and it was like, look at me, I'm the hero, and at home I was drinking and miserable, and the two worlds collided, and that was that was huge for me. Gosh, now I forgot where I was going. <laughs> um, uh, you're good. You're good. <laughs> oh no! Like, why wasn't I ready? Is is because I still I, I still had this image, and I would and that was horrific. For instance, somebody anonymously wrote to my children's school and said, "Lindsay Clark has been driving here drunk." 
um, I think, you, you know, you should get a police officer and a DUI is probably in order. And this was right after I had put on this Valentine's party and we were doing root beer floats and I forgot the ice cream and I was completely drunk. And that letter was like, I don't know who wrote it. It doesn't really matter. But basically it was like, oh my God, the gig is up. And I'm like, this is awful and my name's going to be horrible in Bozeman. And certain things would happen like this over and over. And I was really good at picking up the pieces, picking it back up and looking good. Like in a way, my consequences weren't harsh enough. Like my hangovers didn't last as long as they did near the end. And so my downfall was I would quit drinking because I was like, oh, oh my gosh, this is so bad. This is so out of control. My life is over. And three days later, I looked better. I had cleaned up whatever mess and lied and done whatever. And all of a sudden, everything was fine again. And as soon as I took a breath of like relief, I would drink again <laughs> because I would forget. And then something else would happen. And I would pick up the pieces, look better again, feel good, sigh of relief, drink again. Like it was just... It was just a never-ending cycle. So I'm not the type to drink when things go bad. I'm the type to drink when everything looks fine again. And I'm in the clear. And Lindsay, you are a fighter. You do not give up. Let's talk about the four years while you were in AA. Were you in your first 30 days or trying to get your first month of sobriety for four years? Getting sober, it's the hardest thing that I have ever done. And I can imagine a lot of people, they'll try to quit drinking for a year, two years, and be like, look, it's not going to happen. This is my life. But you were in your first 30 days for four years. What can you tell listeners who are in that same boat? And how did you eventually make it out of those 30 days? So I started going to AA, and I started listening, and I could relate. Well, at first when I started going, When I was listening, I was like, oh, I'm not like them. Oh, I'm not like them. And I did look at the differences. And I kind of set myself aside, like, I'm too good for this. But I tell you what, when you start going and you're desperate, you you pick up on these stories. And I can relate to the guy sitting next to me with seven DUIs. I mean, I can relate to all of it because it's all the same. I found solace in the rooms. You know, and honestly, when everybody shut the door on me, I could still walk in. And I wanted it. I I would listen and I would hear how great people's lives were. And I'd be sitting there miserable. And I'm like, I want what they have. And so I got a sponsor. I started working the steps. I I went to a meeting almost every single day. You know, some of the times drunk, some hungover. A lot of the times I went sober. At first, my drinking wasn't daily. It was, well, at least when I tried to quit, it was drink, remorse whatever, drink again. It was like a three-day cycle. I mean, I, I, you know, when I say first 30 days, I, it's more like I couldn't get my first seven days. I couldn't get seven days sober. But I just, there was something inside of me. I had a little bit of hope, and they kept me going, and they kept me up. I met friends, and they still invited me, even though I was struggling. They were rooting behind me the entire time. I, I, I got a service position. I got a home group. I was doing everything I was supposed to be doing, which I'm really good at. Again, you know, the reason I got a 4.0 in college is because I'm good at, like, okay, I got to do this, this, this to accomplish this. But do I really put my whole heart into it? I'm not sure. But I just, I I kept going. I kept listening. Um, I did get to my ninth step, and my sponsor just didn't know what to do with me. She's just like, you've done the work. I did this giant fourth step. I read her my fifth step. 
But I couldn't start giving amends because I was still getting drunk. And she actually had me go to her sponsor, and I tried, you know, a couple of those, you know, different different aspects. Because honestly, people were didn't know what to do with me. Like, it's normal for people to be in AA and then drink, but they don't keep going every day. And so, I, you know, I know some people do, but honestly, what kept me going every day is just a tinge of hope. And, a, like, 90% of me believed that it would never happen for me. I didn't believe the obsession, the drink would be lifted. I, I, I didn't think it would happen for me, but there was a small, small little percentage that said, but what if it does? What if it can? And so I just kept going and going. And <laughs> and now being in the rooms, I mean, I find myself being like, you guys were right. Why didn't you tell me? <laughs> you know, even though I've heard it for four years, I hear it differently now. And I, I, I'm so grateful. I, I really, I, I, the biggest thing that surprises me is I was just at the point where I don't care. I just I just want to stop drinking. I don't care if I'm miserable. Like, I just have to stop drinking. And to find out that I could stop drinking and then have a beautiful and fun and full life and completely sober, I mean, it's 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 the biggest gift. I want to stand on the rooftops and shout out to everybody that it works. I, I'm just, I'm completely humbled and so happy and so relieved, but... I do have to say, being one foot in and one foot out at the same time was probably one of the most painful experiences. Yeah, I wish I would have hit it hard the first year <laughs> and just got to the point where I did last April. But, you know, there's a reason for everything. And I'm so grateful that I had to struggle so long because I hold on to my sobriety so tight. And I'm not sure I would appreciate it as much as I do because I did struggle for for so long and you know and the one other thing I have to say is I've had lots of people this wasn't the best job but you know thank god it's not my job anymore but honestly coming to the rooms every single day you know hungover or drunk or miserable I kept a lot of people sober (laughs) because they were like let me think (laughs) if I want to go back out let me take a look at Lindsay you know like (laughs) oh oh, yeah I think I'll stay sober (laughs) Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, I feel I, I feel like I'm going to drink today. I'm just going to go take one look at Lindsay and I'll be okay. Exactly. I guarantee you, I, I, I saved a lot of people a lot of times because I'm like, if you want to go back out, this is waiting for you. And, you know, I there's stand up, take you know, a spin. Some, this is what awaits. Yeah. <laughs> well, and there's some meetings where, you know, you'll get ready to go to the meeting and you'll like do your hair or whatever. I mean, there were so many meetings where I like, I probably smelled. I had a baseball cap on. I mean, I would volunteer to do the Christmas marathon meeting. I would show up 10 minutes late, completely drunk, you know, and somebody had to cover me. But they still let me volunteer. It shocked me. Like, <laughs> AA is amazing. Like, I don't know why they kept letting me. Like, you know, I they had a big fundraiser, and they had the hobo barbecue, and they had porta potties And here I'm at this AA event drinking Bud Light in the porta potties and putting it in the toilet so every time somebody goes to the bathroom they see my Bud Light at an AA event like I'm so embarrassed and I you know when I finally told people it was me here again I'm thinking I'm fooling everyone they're like yeah we know that was you Lindsay and I'm like oh shit like <laughs> listeners the the takeaway from that is every pathway to sobriety looks completely different 
Yours, mm-hmm. yeah, yours involved being inside of a porta potty at an AA event drinking Bud Light or Budweiser, but you still ended up getting sober. Yeah, it's a miracle. So let's take this time to take advantage of this internet thing. There's somebody listening to this podcast who's in China. His name is Rafe. He called me. Or actually, I was on a Skype phone call at the San Francisco International Airport at about 7:30 in the morning with Rayfield while he was in China, and he was telling me. I hate to say it, Rafe, the same song and dance. I'm ready to quit drinking. I, I, I'm done with this. I'm so miserable. I hung up the phone, Lindsay, and I said, he's not ready to quit drinking. Yeah. I, I mean, what advice can you give to Rafe right now? Because he will be listening. He thinks he's ready to quit drinking, but I don't think he is. You know, my biggest advice is just don't give in. You know, like, don't beat yourself up. I'm not saying, like, go get drunk and it's fine. People, of course, in AA will let you in, but it's miserable. It's not a life to live, but I do have to say, keeping one foot in the door is what eventually saved my life because I knew that there was hope and it wasn't completely gone. And as long as you just keep going, the thing, I mean, I... My sponsor had me race when some meetings, um, a lot of them in Bozeman, ask if you're in your first 30 days. I raised my hand at every single meeting for four years. Like, it was just almost redundant. You know, people would, you know, the lead would ask, you know, who's in their first 30 days, and they would just turn their head to me. You know, it was like, oh, here I am. Because I was accountable, and part of that, I think, helped other people. Because there was many times where it was nobody would really raise their hand, and I would raise it, because... Clearly, I was in my first 30, <laughs> and other hands would pop up. Like, even, like, and I think that's what kind of helped, too, is that I was still able to be of service, even though that I was a shit show. But the thing is, is I would be so embarrassed, and what I had to remember is people didn't give a shit. Like, I mean, they loved me and everything, but, you know, if I'm not sober, it's not like it's affecting their life. So my biggest thing is don't try to lie, especially in a room full of, people that get it and want to help you and if he's not ready that's okay I mean just keep going I mean like I said something finally clicked for me and you know the only reason I think I made it out alive is because I did just keep going I don't know why I don't know how you know but I do also have to say when I was ready to go and I you know I called my parents and I had, you know, literally 12 hours later, I'm in an, on an airplane um, to go to a treatment center. All of a sudden, I had people from AA coming over. I packed, like, half a suitcase. I had another AA member drive me to the airport. Like, all of a sudden, all these people just rallied around me. And it was, you know, it was amazing. And it was nice to come back and have already a group of friends. But, yeah, I think my biggest advice is, is don't beat yourself up. Don't 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 take it as give yourself permission because that's what I kind of did. Like, oh, just a desire to quit drinking. Oh, I can keep drinking. Yeah, you can do that and be miserable, or you could maybe like listen and stop. But if you're gonna be, you know, give yourself even more shame, I think that's what, that was my number one killer. Is like I said, is I would get sober, and all of a sudden I would be like, oh my god, like I didn't hide the Easter eggs from my kids, like. I, I, I'm I such a piece of shit, and it was too much because I, I, I hated myself. 
And I was like, well, I might as well drink because I hate myself. And it's like, give yourself some grace and don't give up hope because I was ready to throw in the towel and now I'm living like my wildest dreams in, in such a short period of time. Rafe, so. I'm going to piggyback off what Lindsay just said. Don't beat yourself up. You've got this thing. It's a disease called alcoholism. You're not a bad person. And if you're not ready, that's okay. We're always going to be here for you. You can Skype me whenever you want. But I know you say you're ready, and I really hope you are ready. But don't beat yourself up. Lindsay, we have reached the rapid fire round. Are you ready? Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's try to answer these in 30 or thirty to 60 seconds. Number one, Lindsay, what was your worst memory from drinking? There was definitely a lot, but I would have to say my children's faces and their disappointment. Number two, what's your plan in sobriety, Lindsay, moving forward? I just finished my 12th step. I am hoping to be able to give the program to somebody else like it was given to me. Obviously, keep going to meetings, keep doing my step work, working with my sponsor, and I'm still kicking out my amends. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's your plan moving forward. You're doing it right now, sharing your story. It's going to help a lot of people. Thank you. Number three, Lindsay, what is your favorite resource in recovery? It could be a 12-step program. It could be a book, internet. What's your favorite resource? I definitely have to say the 12-step program, AA, it, it it really works, and I hate that cliche. Whatever it, it it does, and when I'm in a grumpy mood, and I my sponsor says to write an amends letter, I do it, and I feel better. It doesn't make sense. And the one other thing is, I have a gratitude list with about twelve other women. We write, we email each other three things we're grateful for every single day, and it keeps us connected. It keeps a positive spin on life, perspective, keeps us bonded. And it's an amazing, it's an amazing thing to share with someone else. Lindsay, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you have ever received? Just to be easy on yourself, that you're doing the best you can. And, and just to be kind to other people and to yourself. Lindsay, we heard what you had to say to Rafe, but what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in early sobriety or are thinking about quitting drinking? That it is so beyond my wildest dreams that I'm sober and that I'm a mom and that I've been able to accomplish and do so many things. People always say it's so good, but there are no words to explain how amazing and precious life is, and it is a thousand times better than any drunk I've ever had or any high or anything like that. Like, I am clearly getting a high off of life, and it's, it's amazing. It's beautiful. I'm going to pull a Patrick Swayze from the hit movie Ghost and just say ditto to what you just said. <laughs> Lindsay, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. I'm sure there's wonderful sunshine out there in Florida to share your experience with us. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. I really, really appreciate it. <laughs> part three, my story, the solution, which is really the most important part of my story because parts one and two, all they are are just running and gunning, drinking, getting my ass kicked. That part's all the same. Part three is my solution. 
how I made it to over one year of sobriety and how you can bet your behind. I'm going to do everything in my power to make it to two years of sobriety because I've mentioned it in previous podcast episodes that only 5% of people make it to 90 days of sobriety when they decide to quit drinking. I have crushed that statistic. Here's where it gets scary. Only 5% of those people starting at the 90 day mark, make it to two years of sobriety. So only 5% of 5% make it to two years of sobriety, but sobriety, two years, bring it on. But I'm not even thinking about two years. I'm thinking of today, September 16th, 2014. I'm pretty sure that I'm not going to drink today because I just spent the last two to three hours of my day on a microphone, pen to paper, working on my story, working on my recovery, editing an interview, blog posts, podcast, yada, freaking yada, part of my recovery and recovery elevator. Got to say thank you to you guys again. You've got me here and I'm going to continue to be selfish. I need you guys to get me to two years and I got room on this bus. Get on with me. You can make it to two years with me because recovery elevator We all took the elevator down. We got to take the steps back up. We can do this. 